Good evening, podcast audience, and welcome to episode 10 of This Heretical Life. I am your host and Eastern Orthodox representative, Brian Thomas, and of course, I am always joined by my brother-in-law, very good friend, and the podcast resident Catholic, Adam Leggett. Hey, everybody. So, Adam, we have finally arrived at the throwdown episode, um, which may be a bit misleading because I doubt we'll end up actually throwing anything down. (laughs) Yeah, Um, I'm I'm afraid this is going to be like super anticlimactic. Probably so. Probably so. Like if if we had done this earlier in the day, maybe because I was much crankier (laughs) earlier in the day. But uh, I ate supper and um, have had a beverage that I will not identify, and I'm not as uh, I'm not as cranky (laughs) as I was. It's well, yeah. It's it's um, as most of you know, or you should know uh, if you're listening. It's the season of Lent, uh, the church season of Lent for Adam and I both. Even though he's Catholic and I'm Orthodox, Uh, his he gets out of it a week sooner than I do. Um, Well, we started a week earlier than you did so. yeah 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 you, this is also true yeah. but like the orthodox have this weird thing where we have a couple weeks before that we sort of like ease ourselves into it so like we have a week where we don't eat meat um and then we can eat meats on that sunday meat fair and then we have a week where we don't eat cheese either and then that last sunday we can have cheese and it's cheese fair and then we start lent so we like deprive ourselves a little bit it's like warming up it's like when you go to a, a sports game Oh my gosh, I can't believe I just said sports game. <laughs> you go to a sporting event, mm-hmm. like a football game or a basketball game, and you see the players like stretching and warming up. Uh, or if you watch the Dallas Cowboys and you see Dak Prescott do exaggerated hip thrusts across there the you field. Go. Yes. It's kind of like that. It's kind of like that. But yes, yes, to the point, you did start a week earlier. So therefore, you do deserve to get out a week earlier than we do. Thank you. Um, but it's crazy. I mean, um, anyway, all that I'd say today is a wine and oil day. So if you're wondering what I was drinking, it may have something to do with one of those two things and mm. do a little bit of work for you. I don't drink oil. Um, <laughs> so, um, but it's it's crazy, right? Like we're recording this. Uh, I guess this is our first episode we have recorded since this whole Corona COVID-19 thing has really yeah altered um, significantly altered the american experience of life for sure um yeah it was just kind of a rumor in the background when we last recorded i think yeah but, yeah you know, something that I was think, just being talked about i think then it was still mostly just like it was it was seen as this thing happening somewhere else you know right. most specifically in china and the wuhan province and i think it had started to take root in italy although it really hadn't hit italy between the eyes uh quite yet like it has now um, and I mean, that's altered church life for everyone who goes yeah. to church. Um, and, you know, I think not to, this is not really here. This is not really our topic, but a little preamble, I guess, not at all to diminish like how this impacts, um, like a, like a Baptist ability to worship or to enjoy what the reality of their church is. But, um, like it is really, it's really difficult for me, um, and I imagine for you as well. For those of us whose traditions center around this notion of of gathering together in a place and receiving the body and blood of Christ, although as a catechumen I, I don't do that yet. It's, I mean, it's it's a pretty big deal. Like yeah. I don't think if I was still a Baptist, I know I would definitely miss 
my church folks, but I don't think it would be, I don't think Sunday would be just like this for me, like right now, and maybe it shouldn't be this, but like when Sunday gets here, like I used to love Sundays and I don't hate them now, but I, I don't like them. Hmm. I don't like them at all right now. I don't like Sundays right now. Um, not, a, I mean, my priest is going to listen to this later and call me uh, probably, but I don't like Sundays right now. Um, I, I dread the Sundays at this moment. So, yeah, it's, it's really, it's kind of heartbreaking. You know, it's like, um, you, you know, if, if you, if you believe that the only way that God's given himself to you is some spiritual ethereal sense, you know, that's not really connected to any form of tangible reality. Um, <laughs> Then, then oh well, you know, man, I can't see my friends. I can't, you know, worship with my family. You know, and that, that and that's significant in and of itself. Don't want to deny yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But like when you believe that one of the main ways that you get to draw close to the one who died to save you is by going to church and receiving him, you know, the one that that you love and and you you can't do that for a season. I mean, my my goodness, that's that's really difficult. Yeah, and, and it's an uh, and it's an open ended season. Like, yeah, we don't know how long it's it's gonna it's gonna last. For sure, uh-huh. I heard. I mean, I heard somebody use this example, and it's fitting because Christ is the bridegroom, right? The church yeah. is the bride. Uh, but you know, let I me mean, think about all the the people in military service who have to go months without seeing the one that they love, or being with their their kids, or a husband and wife not being able to, mm. you know, be together. I mean. Just as a, as I, I don't, I guess I can still say newlywed, just been married over a year now. I mean, that'd be, that's just brutal. I hate being away from Jessica, you know, like, and because I can't, I can't be with her unless I'm with her. Now, granted, there is a spiritual component to even the Catholic and the Orthodox spiritual life, right? Yeah. There is still a sense of communion. We don't want to downplay that, but there's a real sense where we can't, you know, we can't draw near to Christ in the same way. Um, you know, that we, we can when we yeah. get to go partake or just, you know, sit in his presence. Gratefully, our church, I know Orthodox, uh, from what I understand, in churches they don't do this. I think in some of their monasteries they allow it. Um, I, I could be wrong about that. I, I, I believe I read this somewhere. But for us, we, we have some of the hosts, right, tabernacled in the sanctuary, and our sanctuary is still open for prayer, so people can still come in so long as they sit so far apart, uh, okay. and they can still go and pray um, in the presence of the host. But uh, still, it's it's not, um, yeah, know, it's just not the same. Yeah, yeah. I don't know of any churches that, um, or if any Orthodox churches that do that. I'm not, I'm not sure if any if any monasteries do. Uh, they may. Uh, if you've read that they do, I don't want to. I have not read it all. Yeah, extent, well, like so. I said, I, I'm I'm almost positive. Parishes don't like local yeah. congregations do not do that. Um, I, I'm not sure why, but I'm I am pretty sure I read that some some Orthodox monasteries, and it may only be within certain, uh, you know, Orthodox churches like Russian or Antiochian. It may that be something be. like that too. And I know of some. I know some Orthodox who like speak very strongly against that uh, that practice. Sure. Um, but they're but that's that could easily be one of those things that the opinions vary widely, um, uh, you know, vary depending on which 
which specific church, whether it's Russian or Greek or Antiochian, um, sure. you're in. But yeah, I mean, um, we were, uh, Kelly and the kids and I, we were scheduled to be uh, all of this chrismated. Uh, and then the all the boys who haven't been baptized yet were going to be baptized. This was all going to happen a week or two weeks from this past Saturday. And now that's been delayed until probably June. Uh, uh, because that's when, and we haven't, we don't know a date like for sure when it's going to be, but uh, our priest said, you know, by the looking at the projections he's seeing, you know, June looks possible, but even that's, even that's up in the air. Sure. Uh, you know, they're, they're saying by the end of April, if we're lucky, maybe we'll be through the worst of it. Mm-hmm. So, but who knows? Yeah. Uh, who knows? Um, so one thing I read today that again just sort of reminded how strange and odd this is. The Church of the Holy Sepulchre um, in Jerusalem closed its doors, and it's the only time, the first time it's been closed like that since I think, if I remember correctly, since the Black Plague. Yeah. And, and um, a lot of our listeners may not know about the fire uh, from the Church uh, from the Holy Sepulchre, but there is um, a time when uh, my memory's family with the priest or, or maybe the bishop or the archbishop will go down into um, the Holy Sepulchre with uh, a candle and will pray. And while he is praying, and it happens every year, um, and uh, it goes against the Baptist bones in my body to say this because it's not the kind of thing Baptists tend to think actually happens, but um the the candle bursts into flame just a spontaneous combustion uh of the holy fire and then that it's a huge celebration and ceremony that happens there and the candle the flame is is then passed on to other candles and and it's passed around to churches all throughout the world and um a couple years ago i guess it was when uh after i'd resigned my church and we were visiting um father jason foster and the church um, Holy Nativity, I think they're a mission, but Missioner Church, Holy Nativity in Shreveport, Louisiana. We went to a Greek Orthodox church that had a had the flame there, had the, a candle that had been lit by that flame, and it was I was more Baptist then than I am now, and it was weird, um, but it was also very like awe inspiring. Yeah, and so reading today that that's not going to happen. Um, he will probably go down in there. But there won't be the crowd. There won't be the celebration. It, it won't be possible for the flame to be passed, um, for it to be transmitted, and, and for it to to travel to all these different churches uh, across the face of the earth as it has done previously. And that's just this is crazy uh, mm-hmm. to me. Um, that's such a special thing within Orthodoxy, and to have that there's this whole year that's going to go by, and that's not going to be in our churches. And, and a couple of years ago was the first time it had ever come to America. Um, so it's just, it again, just kind of like struck home how serious and widespread and, uh, and in our lifetime, in several lifetimes, I guess, how unprecedented that is for the, the experiences all of us on this earth have shared previously. Yeah, for sure. Well, we spent 12 minutes talking about that when that's not the topic of the show, but it's just like we couldn't, I don't think we could ignore that. That's just like such a, a present weighty thing right now. Right. Um, 
So, uh, so we're going to argue very nicely, uh, probably so nicely that most people may not realize we're arguing. Um, and at some point we're trying to do a more lighthearted, fun thing at some point, uh, in, in the recording. Uh, so we chose a movie to kind of, to watch and, and kind of offer a brief review at some point in the podcast. And we decided to go with something that's available on one of the more popular streaming services. So it'll always be something on Netflix or Hulu or Amazon prime. Um, and for this episode, we both rewatched the, I don't remember when it was made early two thousands, Tom Cruise starring vehicle, the last samurai. Do you remember what year it came out? I do not know. No, let me see. Uh, I had not seen it in a long time. In fact, the last time I had watched it came out in 2003. Yeah, came out in 2003. The last time I watched it, um, we had bought an edited copy from Clean Flicks, I believe was the name <laughs> of it. So um, we were watching so it, and, uh, and yeah, there was blood in this one. <laughs> the other version I watched. They, they recut the film so every time blood sprays out, like you don't see the blood. They just cut that little bit out. So the film was so much longer than I remembered it being. Yeah, yeah. It was a very bloody movie. It was. It was very bloody. Mm-hmm. Um, it was very it was bloody. Really good, but, but we'll get, we'll get yeah, into that. Yeah, we'll, we'll get into that. Um, I, I really enjoyed rewatching it uh, myself, so I'm looking forward to talking about it. So, Throwdown episode, we've got two. Two bones of contention on the docket. Um, well, one I foresee taking up more time than the other. Uh, the first one is the idea of the papacy. Uh, probably more to the point, the, the Catholic um, teaching of papal supremacy. I, um, I'll um, I, I'll go ahead and, and tell you. I do have some questions, like some I guess a beef, I guess or like some confusion about how you understand certain things to be possible without a Pope. So we can, we can sure. go back and forth. Like we can counter a little bit there. Okay. Um, so, but all but yeah. things are possible without the Pope because all things have been done without the Pope because the Pope is not really, you know, I mean, we over <laughs> here in the East have been existing as the true church without a Pope for a long time. Long time. Well, we exist, right? Oh, you, do you, you do exist. Okay. The question is, do you exist with the fullness of all that God would have you to have? Oh, well, sure. Yeah. I mean, you're going to dispute that. Um, and I, I don't know. I know some Orthodox who would probably say there that the, this, the, um, the rifts, I will say, because I can't pronounce, I cannot remember how to pronounce the other word. Schism, schism, schism. schism. Schism, you pronounce schism? That's what yeah. I thought, and then I listened to a whole like two-hour podcast. They didn't pronounce it that way, and threw me off. Yeah. Uh, That's the only way I've ever heard it said: is schism. Schism. I could have sworn on that podcast you sent me the other day they pronounced it schism. Well, not. he's Australian, so he probably yeah. just like it. And to be fair, it. I was walking through eight houses that were each filled with approximately twenty-five thousand chickens when I was listening to it, so I may have missed. <laughs> um but but even i know orthodox that would say that the schism um even though we don't consider ourselves really lacking in the fullness because we don't have communion with with the pope that both there's something i don't know if missing maybe maybe too strong something amiss like it it harms there there is there is something 
that we should have or that we could have, maybe just don't. even fellowship wise that we don't. Yeah. Yeah. So. Pope, I think as Pope John Paul even referred to the Eastern churches as the the left lung, right? Like, I believe it was him. Yeah. Um, you know, so yeah, I mean, we, we would argue that too. So yeah, we can we can talk about the particular particular the particular. Yes. Let, let's start with the short one, if you don't mind. Let's start with purgatory, and uh, okay, and then we can kind of I don't want to say get that out of the way, like it's an unimportant thing, but just kind of let's we can then we can put our full and undivided attention on the yeah the main one at hand. Okay, so because orthodoxy, we <laughs> it's one of those things. In so much as we talk about it, which we don't generally, um, we we probably the Orthodox Church, at least some Orthodox writings that I've read um, and teachings that I've encountered, kind of approach it as we tend to approach a good many things. That it's it's a mystery, we you know, the know. idea can't know because nobody's been and come back. Duh. Um, well, that'd be like saying you can't know the Trinity because you've never encountered yeah. the fullness of the Godhead and, and come back or seen the yeah, beatific yeah. vision and returned. I would definitely say though, we have more revelation directly from God concerning the Godhead than we do about. Oh, that was just an example you could use. Yeah. You could use any no. dogmatic belief sure. that we both share and say the same thing about it. Yes. Yeah. You can. I was being, I was being sarcastic. Um, Hey, this but, is a fighting uh, episode. I'm gonna, I'm gonna push back. Okay, all right, all right. That's generally how <laughs> I fight, though. Um, generally how I fight. My my, the thing that I've told Kelly and few other people because I don't know how they take it is that when I'm sarcastic, I'm joking, but I'm also very serious. Yeah, um, so, <laughs> um, so like in a thumbnail or in a nutshell, kind of what's what's the essential like agreed upon teaching of the Catholic Church regarding purgatory? Sure. Uh, so there's not much, honestly. So there's a lot of medieval, um, and I'm trying to think of the mystic uh, things that have been said over the years about purgatory, and you are allowed to, so long as it doesn't contradict, you know, some theological doctrine that the church has, you're allowed to believe a lot of different things if you want about purgatory. But the church's, uh, you know, defined teaching about it is pretty narrow, and it's basically this idea that okay, we're um, we we go through life right as followers mm-hmm. of Christ, and even you know God allow we die and we are in communion with Christ and we don't have any uh, we're not in rebellion against Him right and we die. There's still that possibility. I would even say probability that we have earthly attachments that we haven't been completely sanctified of yet. Right. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. so not to say we're not growing in our faith or not drawing closer to Jesus, but we've not become saints essentially would be one way to put that. Right? We've, we've not become saintly and uh, completely detached from earthly desire or passion or selfish ambition or any of those things that are sinful and we're working on, but we've not been sanctified like we should be in the flesh, right? Mm-hmm. Well, we believe Scripture teaches that, uh, you know, nothing that's imperfect gets to go into the presence of God. 
right? And so Correct. this yeah. idea that God has provided a way so that after death, before we enter into his presence, there's a final purification. And that's basically all, all purgatory is. It's, and it's not, it's not judgment. It's not, well, you've sinned, so you have, you're punished. You know, this is your punishment. It's you still have attachments that I, as your father, need to help you separate yourself from. So, so just like, you know, in this life, God provides trials and, and sometimes struggles so that we can learn to trust in him more than we trust in ourselves and all that kind of stuff. If we die before that process is complete, he's promised that he'll complete it, right? Even, mm-hmm. even, into, the, even into the next life. First um, Corinthians chapter 3 is one of the primary places that, that we go to, to kind of talk about this. It's the, you know, if anyone builds um, upon haywood or stubble in the end, all that will be burned up. He'll be saved, but though by fire. Yeah, uh, yeah. So it's just this idea that there are still things that we build our lives upon that are not pleasing to the Lord. And before we get to enter into the beatific vision, um, he cleanses us of that. Is that a, does it take a certain amount of time? Is it in a particular place? Is it, a, no, we don't, we don't care. I mean, not that we don't care, but it doesn't really matter. Purgatory is just this idea that there is some process or there is some way that God finishes sanctifying us before we enter into his presence. Um, I believe John Chrysostom, actually, let me see if I can find this. In one of his homilies on Philippians, uh, he talks about this. He, he goes on, he, he talks about, weep for those who die in their wealth and who with all their wealth prepared no consolation for their own souls, who have the power to wash away their sins and do not will to do it. Let us weep for them. Let us assist them to the extent of our ability. Let us think of some assistance for them, small as it may be, yet let us somehow assist them. But how and in what way? By praying for them and by entreating others to pray for them, by constantly giving alms to the poor on their behalf, not in vain, was it decreed by the apostles that an awesome mystery's remembrance should be made of the departed. They knew that here there was much gain for them, much benefit. When the entire people stands with hands uplifted a, pre- a priestly assembly and that awesome sacrificial victim is laid out, how, when we are calling upon God, should we not succeed in their defense? Talking about people that have died, uh, mm-hmm. still attached to earthly things. Um, and then he says, but this is done for those who have departed in faith, while even the catechumens are not reckoned as worthy of this consolation, uh, but are deprived of every means of assistance except one. And what is that? We may give alms to the poor on their behalf. So uh, even even one of the you know big dogs in the East, right? he had this mentality or this idea that there's some assistance that still can and need to be, needs to be given for those who have died in faith, but that are still attached somehow to earthly things, right? So, yeah, Chrysostom's words or the catechism is is another three or four paragraphs of trying to, you know, articulate this. But it's just the idea that uh, God finishes what he starts. And if we are in fellowship with him when we die, it doesn't mean we're perfect. And because he loves us and he wants us to be in his presence, he promises that he will 
uh, you know, sanctifies, though by through, you know, though through fire, will be saved. So does the does the unified teaching on Catholicism include the idea that it is like a like purgatory is a place of fire like like um know. yeah so we don't uh i don't think our i think we would see that more as an image of function that that fire purifies rather than an actual destination and uh, a literal, you know, element that we have to endure. Does that make sense? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Oh, excuse me. <coughs> uh, well, kind, of, kind of along the lines of our God is a consuming fire. Kind of mentality. It's, it's not that God's not a blazing, you know, gaseous ball of flame, but, but that, you know, he's holy and he's pure. It's that, it's that kind of idea. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. The Orthodox. It's one of those things. The Orthodox. I haven't really gotten around to um, putting like creating that I know of or that I've encountered, like a unified uh, teaching on that. There's references to um, what do they call it? Let's see here. A condition of waiting. Mm-hmm. Um, the waiting condition does not imply, but but kind of stop short of purification. Although even um, let's see, and that prayers for the dead then are, are a comfort in the uh, in the the place of waiting. Let's see, I had something else. Yeah, let me see. Um, but there was a um, I find it here. It is. There's a document I found on the Orthodox response to the Latin doctrine of purgatory that that didn't dismiss though the idea of of some sort of purification. Um, I th- and I think one of the things that's pushed back against is is this idea of of, uh, of fire because that passage you talked about from First Corinthians three. Um, if any man's work which he has built on it remains, he'll receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself be saved, yet so as through fire. Um, I, just like backing up a step, like as a growing up Baptist, like that was, that passage was always presented, and, and the Orthodox seem to view it as such as well as. Y'all do have like, a lot in common. <laughs> well, you know. Good hearted. We we dislike never mind. Um, <laughs> there are and, and you know, I kind of like when I when I'm talking about orthodoxy to Baptist friends, I'm like, look, we're kind of like you. We're just I try to think of a better word than better, but like we're, we're like you, just better. It's weirder. It's like yeah, weirder, but that that's not a selling point. We're kind of like you, only weirder. There's a group of people, uh, some of whom I, I know or follow on on Twitter, that's they call themselves Weird Baptist Twitter. I would be like, if you were really weird Baptist, you'd be Orthodox. But, mm. um, but that th- that that passage in First Corinthians three um, is is not really talking about 
like this process, use the word process, I think earlier. And I don't know if that word or like this, the strict concept of a process is part of, of what the Catholic church uh, teaches on it. But I think the idea of process and the idea of it being this, uh, of it, yeah, really of it being like a process, this kind of long drawn out thing of purification um, is really nobody, nobody's, nobody's putting a nobody's put a timeline on it. Again, certain certain mystics people have you know thrown out images or th- you know things they visions that they say that they've had. That's fine, but as far as official dogmatic teaching of the church, it, it could happen in an instant in a twinkling of an eye. Like no, nobody's and again, this is outside of time and space. So to try to put time frame on it would be unfair. There's no way to know, or no one's saying that we do know. It's just we know that, or we believe this is, you know, something that happens. But we're not saying that it has to happen a particular way, or that it has to happen within a particular time frame, or that any of those. Wow, y'all, y'all like seem. <coughs> um, <coughs> excuse me. Um, y'all seem like uh, very uncharacteristically. Kind of mushy on this like one of the one of the things that maybe is just like a stereotype of catholicism is like the catholic church can have this tendency to like define things to death mm-hmm. um almost but you, you you're kind of you're kind of indicating y'all haven't really done that with the concept of purgatory um, am, I, am i correct there or am i just missing the 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 yeah. definite so i i would i would say that you know, you're probably right. I don't. I don't want to say mushy, but um, well, yeah, that's probably not the right word. We're, but we're, almost, I mean, like you almost sound like the more you talk about it, I'm like, well, that kind of sounds like how an Orthodox person would describe it. You sure. know? No, I, like, I think I think you'd be right. I think there's a lot of things that would be like that. I mean, we have we have our traditions, just like the Orthodox do. You know, like just like you're going to go from Russian to Antiochian. And there's going to be kind of like a baseline agreement on certain things. And then there's going to be some little tea traditions that they're willing to almost kill each other over, but not quite. Yeah. You yeah. Know, it, 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 it's kind I of mean, the same. We kind way. of know that we kind of know Catholics may be a little quicker on the kill each other trigger over things than, you know, well, we, we can't kill each other because we're well, all not. unified. Kill we're other people, I guess I should we're, say. We're, <laughs> we're all on the same boat. Um, but, but yeah, I think there's, I think it it is probably, um, it's one of those things that some people talk about and they, they have their opinions and so they talk about it like it's dogmatic. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but when it really comes down to it, the church has some things that they believe about it, that it is true, right? That it is, it does exist, that it is a reality. Um, but then there's a lot of things that they don't speak definitively about. Or that she, the church, doesn't speak definitively about. This is this is neither here nor there. But talking about Catholics killing people with fire, <laughs> it's <laughs> funny how. Uh, and this is, I confess this, like at the beginning of this little rant, Protestant friends that I, the few Protestant friends that I still have, who may be listening, this is not the right attitude for me to have. Yet it's, it's what I find myself leaning towards, and I'm trying to not. But it's kind of funny to me that this is what's happened. But like growing up, like when we would read stories of martyrs or recount stories of martyrs, you know, we always included 
those Protestants that were killed, like in you know the Inquisition, um, mm. or or you know that were were died at the hands of either the Catholic Church or people acting on behalf, you know, or you know sure. at least claiming to act on behalf of the Catholic Church, whether they were or not. Um, and so, like growing up, those people were like heroes, you know, heroes of the faith. Um, and now, not all of them, not all of them, and I'm not, I'm not even Catholic, but now on occasion I'll come across one of those stories and I'll kind of be like, yeah, you probably had it coming. <laughs> and it's terrible. I shouldn't say that. But, uh, uh, I'm like, well, yeah, Burden Hugh was probably a little bit overkill, but still, you, you, you kind of were asking for it. So, like, you knew that was going to happen. <laughs> Um, yeah, I don't remember which one it was, but I, I came across a story the other day and read it. And I remember like, this is one that, you know, five years ago it had been like, dang Catholics. And at this point it's kind of like, yeah, you just, just quit being like that Protestant dude. Right. <laughs> like you kind of had it coming. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's terrible. I should not, I should not think that or say that. Um, cause I don't can't think of many instances in which anybody for any reason has being burnt alive at the stake coming um, to them. For sure. But but just the, just the change in mindset there. Um, Anyway. Uh, Yeah. Purgatory is one of those things like I'm probably uh, over speaking on behalf of the Orthodox. And the one good thing about doing this podcast while I'm still a catechumen I can say any crazy thing and then later come <laughs> back. Like, well, you know, I didn't really know what I was talking about. I didn't know what I was talking about then. And then all my Orthodox friends be like, yeah, he's a catechumen. Don't listen to him. Uh, <laughs> yeah, still in the, it's like cage stage Calvinist phase for, uh, for Orthodox. Mm. Um, but I do think part of it is just there's like this pushback against the word and the, the term like purgatory is just, it's just a Catholic word, you know, it's yeah. a Latin word. Uh, and this this document I read um, that I don't know it it reads like it's really old. I don't know how old. It's, it's either very old or whoever wrote it writes like they are very old. It it, it reads like a not to throw my uh, my educational pursuits in people's faces, but it reads like a Supreme Court opinion from like the 1910s. Um, but like it, it refers to the rift mostly it used instead of Catholic and Orthodox, it says between the Latins and the Greeks. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, one of the main main points was you're like, hey, we don't really like you keep talking about how this is a place of fire and whatever it is, like we don't think it's like whatever you want to call purgatory. Like why are we calling Orthodox are very much like, why are we naming things? Why are we giving them names? Like, when a kid brings a rabbit home and wants to give it a name and the dad's like, don't name it. We're going to eat it tomorrow. Um, like I have, we have cousins that raise cattle and the daughters are always trying to name the cattle, the calves and the brothers are all like, don't name it. We're going to eat it later. Um, the Orthodox like, don't name it. You know, if it doesn't come through a council, we're not going to name it. Um, so I think there's the pushback against just like, but the Orthodox yeah, tradition so that, is kind of like, coming, we don't even know enough about it a, to give it a name. That's coming from a group of people who can't call a council. Hmm? Like, that, I, I'm, I guess this, this might be a, a good place to somewhat transition between the first point and the second point. Uh, or the first contention and the second contention. 
and that's I guess just a I guess a curiosity question, something that really never made like because I I didn't re- I didn't really want to be Catholic, right? When I first started on this journey, um, no one does. Yeah, and, <laughs> no one starts this journey where that we you and I both started thinking I want to be Catholic at yeah. the end of this because yeah. nobody comes from a Baptist background wanting to be Catholic at the end of anything, right? No, it's very true. <laughs> Um, so I guess the question is, okay, well, I I guess a twofold question. One, Brian, do you see the Orthodox Church as a whole? Like, or do you see, is, is saying the Orthodox Church, is that a misnomer? Like, because you've got the Russian Orthodox, and you've got the Antiochian Orthodox, and you've got the, the, um, the Greek Orthodox, are they all, like, in your mind, are they all in the same boat? Like, or, or are they all, like, separate things? And so the Church of Russia gets to determine what's dogmatic and true for the Church. Does that make sense? Or or are, the, are we all one Church, like the Creed says, right? A universal Church, and therefore truth is the same across the board and it has to be the truth truth has to be the same whether you're in Rome or whether or not you're in Antioch um cuz that guy can I'm just, I'm not accusing I'm just asking at this sure, point sure no no from um, from our side from my side or from from my study and from what I read and saw it's like in an ethereal sense or in an idyllic sense we're all united in some sense, right? In mm-hmm. some way, some universal Catholic church, little C Catholic, right? Um, but in a practical sense, you know, the as if, uh, just as an example, the last I read, which was uh, probably a year or two ago, but it was that the ecumenical patriarch was in communion with Russia and Antioch, but Russia wasn't in communion with Antioch and Antioch wasn't, or did accept and felt like they were in communion with Russia. Like it was this, okay, okay, well then who's really in communion with who, and who gets to decide, and why does it matter if everybody's kind of been doing their own thing for so long anyway? I guess it's very confusing. This is, this is about it out. Um, so, I want to throw out the word mystery. I don't want to use it as a crutch. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that that was another. I mean, like, uh, Timothy Ware, who I believe is a bishop now, or uh, yeah. in the Orthodox Church. So I don't. I don't. I think it's like Christos Ware or whatever. Uh, Kalistos. Oh, Kalistos. Um, his book, The Orthodox Church by Penguin House, yeah, um, was really good. Uh, I really did enjoy it, but it did leave me frustrated for that reason. It's kind of like. There, there, it was hard to. I couldn't ever find a clear answer. Like, okay, so who, who, who is the church? You know, like, I, it just didn't make sense. So, I mean, do you, you have a way of kind of walking through that? Um. Yes and no. It's it's like as somebody who identifies as Orthodox. Yeah, but um, what does that mean? I guess is what I'm asking. <laughs> what does it mean to identify as Orthodox? Yes. Um. Because you're you're joining the Greeks, I mean, I'm right? I'm not Catholic. 
No, yeah, we're joining. Essentially, <laughs> that's what it feels like. I'm not saying it's true for everybody, right. but I'm just saying that. that that's how it feels sometimes. Uh, we're joining uh, the Orthodox Church of America, which is its own, is its own, <laughs> is its own church or our own thing. Okay. Um, so we were we were getting into to this a tad uh, before we started recording, and like the the idea that the local church. Um, like the the essence or the universal church uh, exists or subsists, like in a sense, in total in the local church. Like, mm-hmm. um, but then we're and and so that was I was kind of saying that's one of the reasons. And there's more to it. I had to build up to it. Why the papal supremacy, like the term if we use the term papal primacy, is not a term that we'd have a problem with. Um, uh, some some old Orthodox folks might, but that's not inconsistent with, with, um, with Orthodox ecclesiology. But so there's this tension that you highlighted between the idea of the local church being, uh, the, the church, right. And not just being a part or a member of the church. Like it's not just that the Orthodox church of America is not just one part of the universal church. It's not just like the arm or mm-hmm. the lung or sure. because we're red blooded patriots, the, the, the heart. Um, and, and I think that's probably more than anything, excuse me, is the idea is, is the, the, that's the, the paradigm the Orthodox church really pushes back against uh, is the idea of each church being one part or one member, like, um the like our our mission is like one joint of the pinky that is part of the hand that is part of the arm that is the orthodox church of america that is that part of the body of of the church like no that's not how it is we are the church like we're not lacking anything Um, we have the gifts that god gave that christ gave to his church um and maybe it's even without your bishop even without our bishop well, yeah. the bishop, though, is... You have a priest in your local like, parish, so y'all are the church, and y'all don't need your bishop. You have everything you need right there. Well, the bishop, in a sense, is, is part of, like, he's, I don't know, I, I, be make, <laughs> I may be making this up, man. Um, but, like, the bishop is, is, like, part of our church, in a sense. Um, I don't think that I may be totally wrong here and i'm sure my priest will let me know if i am um but like the bishop is not like the pastor of any church i mean i hope not he travels an awful lot he's really bad at being the pastor of a small church Mm -hmm. if he's like the pastor um and the priest our priest fulfills the role of, of pastor of our church and but part of our part of who we are as a church is that we are attached to that bishop Right, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, so, Wait. and the bishop, and the idea of the bishop is is tied back into to scripture. You know, there are the three, from my count, I think in Timothy, and maybe Timothy and Titus combined. I don't remember exactly. There are like three sort of offices um, within the church that are laid out. Um, that the Baptists and other Protestants like to pretend are all the same thing, or at least two, like elders and deacons, mm-hmm. or, or pastors and deacons. Right. Uh, but traditionally, we we recognize it as three, uh, and sure. and our names from our bishop, priest, and, and deacon. Deacon. Yeah. So anyway, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. What were you gonna say? 
Yeah, no, so I guess, so in my mind, though, it just seems like it's an issue of scale, not principle. Because if, maybe that's not the right way to put it either, but like you're you're saying that the church of, the Orthodox Church of North America is the church, right? Yes. It, it doesn't, it does, it's not a long or a pinky or whatever, like it constitutes the church. So, but what you're saying is that the local congregation is a pinky or a lung. Because you do have to have your priest, and, and your priest does have to answer to the bishop, right? Okay, if there was like, if there was only one congregation, like in the Orthodox Church of America, mm-hmm. just one, like... 99% like the, it's like Stephen King's The Stand, all right? 99% of America dies um, because of some weird virus from a bunker. Okay. And so it's down to 1%. We all come together in one place. We just have the one Orthodox church congregation. We would still have both a priest and a bishop, I believe. Okay. So so if you were to, if you were to be on vacation. Yes. Right? Which I will it, probably never be because. Of the corona. Yes. And also broke. But um, <laughs> and if you were to be on vacation and you were going to another Orthodox Church of America pa- parish, mm-hmm. would you be able to go to that priest for the same spiritual counsel as you would your own priest? Or are you underneath the authority of your priest? Like jurisdictionally? Like is jurisdictionally? There an, I mean, is, is there an authority that your priest has? over you that no other priest does there is like that the office like the practice of pastor i don't know how or why unless like in some really extraordinary circumstances you would have more than one um i don't i don't i don't, I don't know how that works like you you go to a church that has more than one priest right yeah do you uh-huh. so how does like how does that how does that work if you have more than one priest at a church yeah, so even within our, our church, we have a priest that is the I don't, I don't know what I don't know what his technical title is, but he's exe- essentially an executive pastor. He is the head priest. The other one's um, an intern. Like oh, he, okay. he's a, he's a priest in training. He's he has full vestiture, right? He has full ordination, but the bishop puts him underneath our head priest so that he can, um, so that he can grow into being a priest and then after like a year or two he gets sent out to his own parish okay okay if that makes sense. um yeah 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 that makes sense um and i don't know how the orthodox do that that aspect of it but but like essentially like unless there's some really weird circumstances then you have you have one one pastor but it's yeah you you would have one priest that serves as in that pastoral role okay uh but there's no like if we were to move and we move from here to a different church uh or to a different area and started attending a different orthodox church uh, a different oca church then uh, it's just by kind of by nature of being there like the orthodox church is and it's it's confusing, um, especially here in the U.S. when there's so many different uh, churches, like so many different geographically aligned churches present. 
but it is very much a geography thing. Like you are, your priest is the priest where you're at. You know, if, if we move somewhere, like if we were to move to St. Louis or Kansas city or, or somewhere like that for work, you know, as much as we love our priest here, and we love father John, like it would be wrong for us to try and keep him as our, our spiritual father while attending a different church that has its own spiritual father. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know where you're going with that question, but I guess, I guess I'm just trying to get in my mind, uh, clearly like your y'all's y'all's understanding of, uh, ecclesiology. Like, Oh, well, that's the problem. You're not meant to have it clearly in your mind. <laughs> <laughs> and this, um, like I'm, I may be over, um, reading into the, I may be, I may be over exaggerating sort of the effects of, um, of the, the schism, but in, in a sense, although I'm not going to be like, yeah, we're all, we're disjointed. That's just how we are. That's how we like it. Like, you know, we're dysfunctional and we like it that way, but, mm-hmm. but I do kind of think at least in some of what I've read and some conversations I've had, not that this is a, a, a like a, big T tradition or even a little T tradition in the Orthodox church that there does seem to be some sense that part of the, like that confusion and that kind of disjointedness and even like the downright pettiness that can exist sometimes between, um, you know, like the, the, the uh, patriarch in Russia, like not being in communion with the, the Ukrainian church, that has nothing to do with, with anything church related that I know of, it's just, it's just politics. That's just because Russia and Ukraine like don't like each other as countries, mm-hmm. um, which just makes me incredibly sad. Um, sure. As an American sitting over here who, who has nothing to do with either of them. Sure. Um, but I just, it, I hate it. Like it just makes me mad and it kind of, it doesn't make me want to not be Orthodox, but it makes me want to go, why can't we be more like the Catholics <laughs> mm-hmm. and get along? Well, um, you, you can't. So you realize, like, like um, Catholics don't get along. But um. okay, uh, so I guess, I guess my next question would be in line of okay. Well, then how do you, how do you know what's true, right? And I, I so, as Catholics, we have this kind of phrase, uh, faith and morals, right? That the church is there to help us know what's true in the realm of faith and morals, mm-hmm. right? Um, so I, I, I could be wrong, but I'm going to try to articulate this and you correct me if I'm, if I'm not right. The, the Orthodox position on like the first seven councils, right? Yeah. Is that they are true and they're binding on the universal church. Is that, is that right? From what I understand? Yes. Okay. Although I reserve the right to change my mind if you're (laughs) freaking. Yeah, I understand. You can play your. Uh, uh, my catechumen card catechumen card yes um so and the things that were present at those first seven councils in order to make it in order to be able to define truth and to make it binding is that all the all the bishops or the the patriarchs were in communion Right, they they made this decision, or that you know they weighed it all, they argued it out by the leadership of the Holy Spirit, right? Mm. And uh, 
in response to heresy, in response to, to falsehood, like Arianism or whatever the case may be, um, they got together in unity, they identified the heresy, they articulated truth, um, and they were in, they were in, like they were in agreement, right? And, mm-hmm. that it, and then afterwards, it was accepted by the universal church, and therefore, we can know that it's true and binding. Am I am I missing something there, or is that? Not, no, I mean that's 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 pretty much how I understand it as well. So okay, so there's a couple of there's a couple of I guess questions or, or issues that I have with that, right? Okay, that I'm not sure what the I really, I'm like I'm not again I'm not picking I just really don't know what your answer is I don't know what the answer is supposed to be from an orthodox perspective. First of all. From what I've read and understand, the first council was not unanimous. There were some bishops that didn't agree with how it was all done. And the second council was in response to the fact that there were still Arians, and it had to be further defined to try to continue to squash what these baptized Christians right, were teaching in their churches. So does that mean that the first council is not binding? Because not everyone was in agreement. And it wasn't universally accepted, which was the reason why they had to have a second council. So was the first council not binding? And if if we you know if you say well it was and everyone was in agreement and response to this heresy and all that kind of stuff, then the question is okay after the seven councils, when the schism took place. How can any of the Orthodox churches, if that's what's required in order to be able to identify heresy, articulate truth, and have it be binding on the universal church, all those things have to be present, right? Then after the seven councils, how can any of the Orthodox churches speak about truth dogmatically? Because none of those things are present. And if they're going to say that the papacy or papal supremacy is a heresy. They can't. Not not dogmatically they can't, because all the things that they say are necessary to be present in order to define heresy and to proclaim truth and for it to be binding, none of those things are present. So when it comes to any issue of faith and morals, right, um, my understanding, and I could be wrong, and we'll get into these particular topics some other time, but like the issue of divorce and remarriage or contraception, that there are certain disagreements between some of the Orthodox churches. Probably. So are those things not important enough to be dogmatically defined? Does truth and holiness in those areas not affect one's salvation? Um, If it does then what are you supposed to do? How, how is any Orthodox person, if those are the things required, the things that is claimed were a part of the first seven councils in order for it to be dogmatic and binding, and since those things are not present anymore, how can anybody in the Orthodox Church have any confidence to say that they know what God expects of them within the realm of faith and morals? Because... The church can't define it, 
because the things that the church, the Eastern church says has to be present are no longer present. So are all the other issues not that important? And God just said, well, the first seven were good enough. The rest of this stuff is just, eh, whatever. Or is there something else that has, that, that God gave his church so that we could know even when there wasn't a consensus? Even when there were some bishops that didn't agree and didn't like it, we could still say, you know what? We still know what the truth is. And it is binding, even if people don't agree with it. Um, I do not know whether or not unanimity, whether or not there has to be, whether consensus has to be unanimous in order for it to be binding. Okay. That I, I don't, I don't know. Uh, or if it's, I doubt it's like a strict majority, um, or if it's something more like, you know, two thirds, or if everybody just kind of knew those bishops were not going to agree. I, I like, I, I don't know how much of a consensus creates a consensus, if that mm -hmm. makes sense. Yeah. Um, uh, in regards to like, yeah, the, as far as I know, the, the the Orthodox Church recognizes there has not been like there hasn't been a council since those. Like, there have been councils, but not like a capital C council. Right. Right. Um, and then there are there are topics that we've we've talked about. You know, uh, probably our next um, our next throwdown will will touch on things like divorce and remarriage and and contraception. Um, I don't know, and and um, I'll probably be more prepped to to talk about those specific things another time. Sure. Um, yeah, I, I was just using them as like uh, that may not be fair. If so, I apologize. I was, I was just trying to like. No, it's kind of halfway not fair, but <laughs> like, no. But no, I understand. We just understand your point, though. Moral um, questions. Yeah. Is there a difference? For, um. And I'm. I will. This is not me playing my catechumen card, just me playing the, the I don't know, because I haven't studied that, that enough card to, to look at what what precisely like each of the, the first seven councils um, addressed. You know, I know my understanding and, and my limited knowledge of them is that they were more as maybe a stupid uh, bifurcation. They're more theological in nature and even maybe theoretical um, in the sense like you're talking about the nature of God, you know, the, the idea of a Trinity, the, the nature of Jesus Christ, you know, um, who was one person, but who had two natures, a divine nature and a human nature. And what was the relationship between those natures? Those mm -hmm. are theoretical. seems like too slight a word, but, um, and it's not that those things don't have a bearing on, on everyday life. They do, but, but those seem to me to be like fundamentally different than a question like whether or not a couple can or should use contraception mm -hmm. um, or, and then other things like, uh, like, like abortion, that that's something the church has, has universally always condemned. Like there's, that's one of those things Not that you didn't mention it specifically, but just kind of to, to pick another thing. Like that's something that the church has always until recently um, when, well, no, the true church has always stood united that abortion is a grave moral error. I mean, that's, that's sure. a sin. I, I, sure, I, I would agree with that. I would just say that um, I don't, I think, 
until the councils, the divinity of Christ was accepted by the universe. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. So what happens when something comes up, right? Where the church has said, we've always agreed on this, but now all of a sudden we've got Zwingli over here telling us that, you know, even though we've always believed this, that baptism doesn't save you anymore. Okay, well, we've got to answer, you know, like, so, so I'm just saying, like, if, if we're not already there, we're really close for issues like homosexuality and abortion and all manner of things to be brought up within the realm of even the traditional churches. Like, I really um, believe that. Like, I, I do. I mean, that's, I, I, I don't, I, I will be. 100% honest, I don't know of any push at all in the East, in the Eastern church for those things. Now, there, maybe they're there and I just don't know about them. Um, it's possible. I don't, I don't know that much about how, you know, I, I'm not as familiar with uh, Eastern church life and inner controversies over things like that. But um, not to say that the West is like, more prone to having to stomp out heresies and stuff uh, in the last thousand years. But at the same time, you, it kind of seems like that is a problem that's, that's cropped up. Um, well, it's just so convenient to blame everything on Protestants. Um, <laughs> but, well, I mean, the enlightenment, moral relativism, like it's all, it's all tied in. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, I do think it's it's it needs to be like taken into account or, or I'm not saying you're not, but just like when we look at these things that are like, oh, how is the church? And, and we had conversations like this, you know, in, in the Baptist church and Baptist circles, like how is the church going to respond to homosexuality? How is the church going to respond to postmodernism? How is the church going to respond to this or this? Like it's a very Western thing from and this again is a limited exposure to uh, the Orthodox church and, and the Eastern church, but it's like a very Western, it seems thing to like wring your hands over that, to wring our hands over that and say, how are we going to respond? How are we going to, you know, what are we going to say? And the Eastern church is it. And maybe, maybe this is some sort of flaw in the Eastern church, but the response is just to kind of shrug and be like, we don't have to respond. We've said the same thing about this forever. It's like, um, if you like, I don't know if you've ever encountered somebody like on Facebook or Twitter, like a celebrity or an author or something who, who will like in a tweet or a Facebook post posit this idea. And somebody will ask a question be like, well, what do you say about this? And the, the famous author person will say, well, go read my book. And yeah. somebody also asks a question. They'll say, eh, just go read my book. That's kind of how the Orthodox approach it. Like go read our book. Like, we've settled this. We've never questioned this. This but, is but, not a serious okay. point of contention. So if, if we go, if we go outside of the realm of morals and go back to the issue of faith, then, then my, my question would be, okay, but what if the book disagrees with itself? Because even in books like by Timothy Ware, he'll admit that there are, there are people within the Eastern church that have, believed pretty much the exact same thing about like the Immaculate Conception of Mary. Sure. Right. Yeah. And there's some people that disagree. Mm -hmm. And that before Rome defined it, right, 
nobody really cared. Yeah. Right. It was just whatever. So what's your response when there's things that, well, you said go read the book. I don't realize it's just a, an, an example or an illustration, sure. but you know, but then the, the authors of the book, they, they disagree about some of it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I mean, I think that's a good example because that is one that, um, there is variety within Eastern traditions as to, I mean, we kind of, we don't have the same formulation of like, uh, original sin, you know, how the Western church, um, even non-Catholics in the, in the West, uh, formulated and the Orthodox teaching of ancestral sin, which is similar, but not quite the same. Um, so it's, it's really, um, probably, wrong to say it, it doesn't matter um but it kind of like what do you say it doesn't matter we it doesn't we don't care <laughs> i mean we care and and it's kind of you can it's really weird to say you're free to believe what you want to believe about that within parameters um but i guess my question would be like how is that necessary to faith why is it necessary for you to believe one way or the other is it necessary for you to believe well you're catholic you probably think so but like, is it necessary? Like, why is it necessary that we have a definitive answer to that question? Um, well, I mean, a Catholic answer would be because what we believe about that says something about our view of who Christ is and what he came to do. Um, but, I mean, that's an extremely short answer. A lot of it's people have. Um, I guess. I mean, I don't. I don't really... I don't really know how. I'm sure. I'm. I'm, I'm sure. There's. There's a, a very logical progression of thought from the Catholic Church that that shows, like how that answer was reached. Like you didn't show your work, but I'm sure because the Catholics always have work to sh you know behind their answer. I'm sure there's yeah, work well, there to be shown. It would be the same as saying like discussing the Trinity and trying to define the Trinity. Well, a little three-year-old is not going to, or I say three-year-old, uh, eight-year-old, right? Somebody that can express in faith, right? They're not going to understand the Trinity, right? Right. They don't have to. In order to know and believe that Jesus is God's son and he came and died on the cross so that he could redeem the world from its sin. You don't have to understand the Trinity in order to be saved in that sense. So why is the Trinity a big deal? Well, because we don't stay eight forever, I guess, right? Like at some point it does. Like at some point you need to be able to articulate, you need to be able to. But like, but why, why not? I, I know, but from a Roman perspective, we would say, okay, well then we, we at some point, the relationship of who Christ is to humanity is influenced or it influences what we understand and about the mother of God, right? And vice versa. And if we, if we skew our view or understanding of who Mary is, right? And what God did in her and through her, then it could, it could and has, from my understanding, skewed people's perception of Christ, right? And who he was as a human and divine. And what does all that mean and look like? 
I, I, again, people have argued this for a long time, and I, I, I'm not versed enough in Mariology or anything like that nearly well enough probably to be having this conversation. Probably this conversation. <laughs> I'm not versed. I'm not well versed enough in any of this to be having yeah. this conversation. Yeah. But I have but, just enjoyed the fact that it is wine and oil day and feel invincible. <laughs> that's, I overstated that slightly, but uh, just for like real, real, real quick for a sec for a, a podcast that is ostensibly about us throwing down over papal supremacy. We haven't said a word about that guy yet. That's true. That's <laughs> and true. we're like over an hour now. Um, but I do think this is really, I think this is like necessary kind of groundwork um, to kind of get there probably, I guess. I don't know. Uh, I think you're just misdirecting. <laughs> honestly. Um, well, but I guess, I guess I'm trying to just deal with, Practically, from a Roman perspective, why everything that I'm about to, whether in this podcast or the next, try to explain, why I feel like it's the answer. Sure. No, I get that. I get and, that. And I'm not trying to undermine anything. I'm just, I'm, I'm just trying to understand, because in, in all honesty, some of these things never did make sense, which is part of why I'm Roman now. Right, like, yeah. Just okay. Well, then, how do you, how can you define, and why, you know, these things, you know, mere Christianity, you don't have to know a lot of stuff, right? So, where where do you draw the line and say, well, we don't have to know that; it's not a big deal, until it's a big deal, right? Until there's somebody out there making a big deal out of it, and then you need to be able to say, nope. That's not what we believe, and this is why, and so on and so forth. But anyway, yeah, um, I I get that. I do, uh, and there's because I don't think we're gonna get very. I think we're gonna have to call this um, call intermission or something here in a minute. But because um, I there's a, a there's a huge part of me like there's there's a massive aspect of my personality that demands orderliness it's the same aspect of my personality that makes me a horrible dad because um it gets it can get way way under my skin when my kids do not act in a a way that is in any shape or form orderly which is a lot like i i like there's there's part of me that has to have like order it has to has it has to have logic there has to be this logical progression of things that's one of the reasons i love the law is because at least in theory the law has those things not always it doesn't always it doesn't usually but in theory it does like the theory of law is this idea of logic and order and progression and part of me really 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 likes that and and liked that uh about the catholic church when i was in the midst of my my protestants exodus um but but part of me also like um and maybe this is maybe this is like the bad part of me but one thing 
And this was something that I had sort of latched onto years and years and years and years ago in my my study of the Bible and my theological pursuits and, and reckoning with God and who he is and what he is and how he is, is the idea of not because God is like God is not chaos, right? God is not disorder. God is not disunity. Right. Um, but the perfect order of God's divinity is not something that we're going to uh, mimic here. I mean, not to say that we don't want to do things in order. We do. But that, like, that'd be that'd be. But like in my mind, that's it's the same principle as you saying that we're supposed to try to. It's like, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, right? Like, right. well, there's no way that's going to happen, but we should try. God sure, try. yeah, I'm not saying, no, 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 I'm not saying we don't try. I'm not saying we don't try. Uh, we should try. And again, that's that's one of the things that bothers me, like, when I do keep up and, and hear news about, like, squabbles with between Orthodox, you know, patriarchs. It's just, like, you guys are supposed to be you're supposed to be bigger than that, you know, like the church is supposed to be above that. Like in theory, it shouldn't matter if Russia and Ukraine, the nations are tearing each other's throats out. A Ukrainian Christian should be able to walk across the border and go worship at a Russian church and be welcomed there. Sure. Like, and I realized, but that's like, that's, that's, an ideal that like, I'm not going to go to the middle of the war zone and yell at those people about that because the war zone, like the ideal that we hold and that we strive towards with that, like is, is something that most of the time in this life, we're just going to catch glimpses of, you know, mm-hmm. um, it, I guess it's sort of a weird dichotomy that, a person within the church is capable of achieving a, a, a greater level of holiness than the church itself will this side of glory, if that makes any measure of sense. Sure, sure. Um, anyway, I've, I've gotten sidetracked on what my original point was. Um, well, I, I think the the I think where you were headed was just talking about how that um, you know defining truth. Or trying to define these things and articulate them, you like order, uh, you like structure in law. That's why you do it. This is like but, this is like you looking down at your notes, trying to figure out what the heck I was talking about a minute ago. But some, uh, but somehow ch- church, you you, or you ended up. That's why you were attracted to Catholicism. Yeah, but, I was. Um, but I think and and like I'm really trying to figure out the best way to say this. Because I don't want it to sound like I'm trying to rip the Catholic Church, because I'm not, and there's a lot of a lot of beauty there. But it, it's not as if the Catholic Church is without its own major major issues, like oh, as far sure. as like power struggles between factions and between different cardinals and different bishops. And and so when when you talk about and, and it's and it's a perfectly valid criticism that. Russian patriarch and the Ukrainian patriarch, they should get along and, and everyone should know who's in communion with who and everyone should be in communion with each other. Um, and I recognize that the squabbles in the Catholic church, as far as I know, don't reach, haven't reached the level where like one bishop is refusing to give communion to another bishop. Right. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't think it's reached that point. 
Um, although one priest, like I think, did refuse to give communion to who was it? Was it Joe Biden? Yeah. Yeah. Good for him. Um, yeah, for sure. They should do that more often. Um, but um, I mean, there, there's a there's much there's a lot of disorder in, within how Orthodox churches relate to each other, for sure. I don't think, and I understand how and why, in theory at least, like the Catholic hierarchy up to the papacy is an answer to those problems. But at the same time, it's not like that hierarchy has solved even those same problems within itself. Again, that's sure. not really, an ex that's not even, I'm not even using that to say like, thus everything you say is invalid. I don't mean yeah, it that I, way. I, 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 no, I, I get it. I know what you're saying. I, I mean, and I, and I agree to the extent that it is a mess and the papacy is not doing its job. Um, I think my response would be, but it could. Like the the structure is there, and it has, I think Pope Pius X, um, he did something similar where there was some pretty messed up stuff going on um, in his day. And he it he had the authority to fix it. And he, and he did. A lot of people hated him for it, but... Is he the, he guy, that ex, is he the guy that excommunicated Luther? Uh, no, that this no. was like uh, early 1900s. Okay, all right. Um, but I, so I guess practically, I'm just I, like I, I look at the issues in the East, and I, I when I was on my journey, and I was just like, I'm not sure how this is resolved. Sure. Like, I'm not sure. I'm not sure what would have to happen in order for something to to change, right? Apart from to to sound really Protestant. Apart from a revival, you know, <laughs> you know, like like some some move of of God beyond, you know, any form of comprehension. Um, I'm not. I don't know how that that works itself out. And um, not to say that not to say that Rome will fix it or is going to anytime soon. But when I looked at it, it was like okay, but I, I get how it could work. Sure. Yeah. No. I mean, I get how it could have worked too. I, I, I don't think it. I don't think it would. Like, I think it's one of those things. If a pope pulls See, that, but, it, kind but of it has, it has in the past, and I guess that's my point. Like, there have yeah, been seasons, there have been seasons in the past where you had swaths of liberal, modernist bishops and things like that maybe not to this extent but you did have them and uh where popes would step up and say okay no that's not happening and he'd he'd remove them as bishops or he'd you know replace them and put them in a siberia not siberia because you know russia's in charge of that but you know what i'm saying like, yeah don't you hey that's where we send all of our rogue bishops and priests <laughs> but uh but anyway so i i guess i guess that's like my my anti argument to you know what I knew was coming from from you I guess as far as the Pope <laughs> but the, but the things like I didn't actually ever get where I was going on that like um I I don't want to say that the the order that is within God is unimportant because it's not I think it is important I think the Orthodox 
church churches need it um like maybe maybe that's part of the issues there i don't know but i'm trying to think of the best way to phrase this um because it's the word that comes to mind is a not a good word to, to, to use but like the un the unknowable nature of god that god mm-hmm. is the a great unknown like um and and it's and then it's a real big stretch to say that I see that reflected in sort of the messiness of orthodoxy, but not in the messiness of orthodoxy, but the mystery. The mystery, yeah. Which again, it's just it's like a giant cop out, I know, but to me, especially as someone who who can really get bent out of shape when I can't define something, mm-hmm. um, there is a great rest in knowing that. Of all the the work God asks of me, and I do believe God asks, and I might even say requires work of us. Um, not that we work for our salvation, but we kind of do. Um, we don't. But anyway, active faith and all that. That of all the things God asks of me, God asks me to to love Him. God asks me to love my neighbor. God asks me to to love the poor. God asked me to love my enemy. God asked me to love a lot of things, mm-hmm. a lot of people, a lot of things in people I don't particularly find lovable. For sure. And God asked me to know him and God asks me to commune with him. And God, that's part of the word. God, that's part of, I can't be holy a part of, apart from knowing and being known by God and drawing near to him. But at no point does God ask me to define him, you know, uh, I mean, he because he he but, came but, to me and defined himself, right? But but again, then what about the Trinity? God didn't define the Trinity in the Scriptures. The sure, it's not there. But but yet, East and West both would agree that it's essential to understanding who He is and our relationship yeah. to Him. Maybe this is maybe this is like really big time splitting hairs. But are we defining God the Trinity, or are we just describing? the means by which, or or are we describing the way which he has revealed himself to us, that he has revealed himself to us as a triune God? Yeah, that that in my mind, that's just splitting hairs. Yeah, I get that. Truth, the truth of God has to be revealed, right? Like that's the the whole point of scripture and the magisterium and the teachings of the church and Christ incarnate. And like God has to make the first move. Yeah. But... So, so the Trinity was true even before we defined it. For sure. Describe but it. I'm not going to give you that here. <laughs> I'll the tell difference? you why in a minute, but go ahead. Define and describe? You're, defining is describing. You're, you're, you're explaining the definition that you see. Maybe there's a better, a better word parsing, but if I... If we go on like a walk and I see a rock and my friend who is with me, who is, this, this is probably all kinds of terrible, but who's blind, asked me to describe the rock. I'm going to tell him the size, the shape, the coloration, whether it has any parts missing, if there's moss on it, kind of where it is. But I haven't in any meaningful, in, in any meaningful way to find what a rock is. I mean, a rock is... You're, you're giving a definition. And I'm giving like, a description. I, well, it, 
But if my scientist friend asked me, what is a rock? I mean, I have no idea. I don't know what a rock is. But if my blind friend asked me, I can tell him. I don't have a blind friend, just for the record. Okay. But I, mean, I, I, I see what you're saying. I, I think, I don't know. I feel like. Because I, I like. We I, describe. I, think, I think I think you're right. I'm I'm not I'm not arguing with you. I I get it. Like I understand that. And maybe there are better words. There are probably better words to like probably than describe define. But like we describe God as triune because God has revealed Himself as triune. But but we can only take that to a point. Like we three persons, one nature. And somebody asks us, "How does that work?" Well, that's I, I don't know. Maybe I, I can't tell you how it works. Like that—that's when we get into yeah. scientist land. Like I can't define. Like I can't. It, again, probably the wrong word there. But like, if you ask me, like metaphysically, how is that possible, and how does that function? Like, I don't really know, and I'm really comfortable not knowing. Um, and I'm sure. really comfortable relating to God as He's revealed Himself. Um, and. And okay with, not just okay with, but like, am, am very happy that there are aspects of God, including how the perfection of his order works, that I'm not, it's, maybe, maybe, I'm probably going to get so many phone calls from my priest about this, <laughs> uh, but maybe I'll get a glimpse of it. And there have been moments that I, I've, probably rarely ever talked about before because it's super unbad this thing to say but like I, I i promise like there were moments and i imagine you have times like this too when i was a youth pastor or when i was a pastor and i would and i would be studying and preparing for a bible study or a sermon or something and i'd be wrestling with a concept and i'd be like i cannot and i and and what i eventually realized i think was happening was i was trying to push it to a, a level of like molecular definition mm-hmm. that was just, it's not necessary and maybe not even good to sure. try to push it that far. Sure. Um, but I knew, but also like instinctively I knew there was that the, the way I could line it out, like there was, there was something more to it than that. Like I, I every once in a while I just get this sense, like there's a whole nother level of God, like, and this is going to sound terrible, like just on the other side of that definition. Sure. <laughs> like if I could just cool. figure out how to more perfectly define it. And then that there were times in study, like it was, it almost felt like so many phone calls from my priest um, where I, I would like get this glimpse of it. I mean, there were moments like really brief fleeting moments when I felt like in that moment, you could have asked me any question about the nature of God and I could have told you the answer. Not because I had some, I had like def, defined it, like I had found all the perfect English words to describe God, but just like, I don't know, clarity, like illumination. I don't know what word. Those weren't words we, those weren't like Baptist words. It was just like this, it just almost felt like a glimpse. This has nothing to do with what we're supposed to be arguing about. I'm sorry. Yeah, um, I, I get it. But like there's almost just this glimpse. Um, but as soon as I pick up a pen and try to write it down, it was gone. I don't I get what you're saying I don't feel like I've lost that in Catholicism right like we we do define a lot of things or describe whatever um, 
we, <laughs> we do describe a lot of things, right? We do make a big deal of morals and holiness and knowing, being able to know what, you know, what kind of life is pleasing to God and, um, you know, all those different types of things. But I've not found that I, I've lost within it there's just more, right? It's just, it's just like this, it's like a well that doesn't run dry. Mm-hmm. Right? I don't, I don't feel like as I draw a definition um, or an illustration of what God's love looks like that I've quenched my thirst, mm-hmm. but in a good way, I still thirst for more, right? Like, and, and, and he's deeper, than, than sure. my desire could ever go, right? So there's there's no end to the depth and the beauty and the mystery of God. It's kind of like the old saying, the more that I know, the more I know how much I don't know. Yeah, yeah. You know, like, I guess that's how I see it. And and kind of going back to the argumentative aspect of this, it's kind of like, um, so what's, like, why does it matter if you're Orthodox or you're Anglican or you're Baptist or well, I guess not Baptist, but as long as, as, <laughs> as I guess as long, not Baptist. as long as you, as long as you believe in the Eucharist and baptism and that the church is somehow universally present here on the world, who cares? Why do you care so much about liturgy? Why does it matter? Who cares about John Chrysostom? Right? <gasps> How dare you sir. i'm i'm being sarcastic he he really yes. liked the pope so i'm a big fan of john <laughs> he was just being nice his mother told him if you can't say something nice don't say anything at all and well he, he he said that christ entrusted him with the headship of the universal church so i mean i'm not sure how you know I mean, he seems like he really liked it well, but anyway um john enjoyed wine and oil day a bit too much <laughs> <laughs> i definitely give you a phone call for my priest yeah <laughs> That's hilarious, but but I, I'm I mean I'm kind of picking kind of not, but the the point I guess is that I just like if if the mystery is the thing, right? Then why are there any arguments at all? Why do Russians argue? Why why are you I... Orthodox and not why or why are you Orthodox and not Anglican or Lutheran? Because the thing, because Anglicans would agree that the first seven councils are binding, and that God's just left it up to the individual church is, right, to kind of work through it the rest of the way themselves. So why aren't you? What? What? Why does it matter? Why? Why? Why should you care that anybody else be Orthodox? Why not just say, well, yeah, if you'd rather be Anglican, by all means, go for it. Um. I don't, I'm not going to pretend to be an expert on what Anglicans believe. Uh, the best, I apologize to any Anglicans who are listening, best summation of the issues that I have with the, with the Anglican Church are summed up with the phrase I heard from someone once, the Anglican Church has no moral compass. Um, well, but, but there's no, there's no, um, there's no, I mean, why, why does it why does it matter it, there's no definitive dogmatic voice anywhere that says that these things 
I mean, we, we're going back in circles, I think. But it's just, we are a little bit, yeah. And uh, I don't know. This is something you said earlier that I felt like I like made a note to like kind of push back a tad on, and then we got off, and I didn't. I, I don't know that I that it's correct to say that the only like authoritative teachings of the church came from the councils. Hmm. Okay. Um, I don't know. I'm not saying that it's not true. I'm just saying I sure. don't know. I think, I think not, but I don't know. So I don't know. Um, but um, I mean, I think there are other reasons too. For one, like as much as I love mystery, like there are things that I, I think are meant there are things we are told that God does reveal, like that that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, is the second person of the Trinity, that he is present uh, in the Eucharist, that he did establish his church, uh, you know, beginning with the apostles, uh, apostolic succession um, is um, important. I think that matters. That's something that one of the reasons I'm not Lutheran or Anglican, um, although I think some Anglicans claim to have it and other ones don't care. Um, yeah. Anglicans are kind of all over the place, um, but and I and and with what you're saying about the Catholic Church, I don't mean to say like, well, if you join the Catholic Church, you're signing away mystery and beauty forever. Um, like one of the most beautiful kind of meditations on beauty I've ever heard um, was from a Catholic theologian, um, Herman. I don't remember the other thing, Bevink or something like that. It was quoted. It was read in, in um, a film I watched once, and it was it was just it was beautiful. Um, been a long time since I've watched it. Um, Balthazar, that's his name. Hmm. I'd take that back. That may not be his name. <laughs> um, Herman van Balthazar or something like that. I'll have to look it up. It's in um, it's in episode six of For the Life of the World film series, um, the, the episode about beauty and wonder they read a passage from one of his books about beauty. Hans von Balthasar, maybe? Something like that. So I, I don't mean to say that the, the Catholic Church is devoid of beauty. I don't, I don't, that's not true at all. Um, but I guess... Anyway, I, I, I've kind of lost that thread now. Um, I do think there's a tension between mystery and beauty... Not beauty. I think there's a tension between the mystery and how much of God is unknowable versus, um, I think, a very human tendency to to define things. Um, in some cases, define things when they don't necessarily have to be defined. Um, I mean, we're like an hour and a half now. Um, I'm starting to get sleepy. Uh, do we want to kind of put a pin in it and maybe do a part two of this? Yeah, that sounds sounds good to me. Do we want to talk about the movie? I think uh, I kind of want to talk about the movie because if we wait for another week or two, I'm going to forget about it and have to watch it again. <laughs> okay, go for it. Um, I thought this was I kind of thought it was a really neat film for us to to watch and kind of review because in some ways it illustrates really shallow and a really shallow level a little bit of the tension we're talking about in that it is this mm. culture clash between Tom Cruise's American Western character and Ken Watanabe's East, you know, Japanese samurai and, and their, um, 
their various approaches. Like um, real quick, I, I think before we get into like themes or notes of the movie, um, been a while since I watched it. The version I watched had been edited, um, but it's a really well to me. I thought this is a really well done film. Yeah. Um, I think I mentioned to you in a text, like at its very its weakest moments are still very competent. Like there's yeah. there's not really anything in the film that I'm like, oh, that was really poorly done. Uh, sure. It was. I thought it was well written. It flowed. The pace of the film I thought was was well done. Um, there wasn't really anything about the direction that stood out as outstanding, but there wasn't anything in the direction that I thought was bad either. Um, yeah, it, it's not like um, it's not like Christopher Nolan's Dunkirk or no, um, you know, even oh, who am I trying to think of? Uh, Grand Budapest Hotel, Wes Anderson. Wes Anderson. Or, yeah. There, there's not like a distinctive style or these shots that just kind of take your breath away, but there's it. Maybe it has more to do with editing than anything else, but it's just it's. There's nothing distracting about it. Yeah, like it's just you, you gotta get immersed in the story, and you're just comfortable there, like yeah. just yeah. watching and participating in the journey, and you know it, it's good. Yeah, and the um, like the battle scenes were were uh, again they weren't anything fantastic. There's nothing groundbreaking about them, but they were. They were well done. There was no point really when I was watching where I felt lost, which is sure. generally how I how I gauge whether or not an action sequence is is done well. Is did I get lost in this at any point? Mm-hmm. Um, it had been a while since I'd watched kind of an action bat uh, film, or especially like a um, like a film with a battle sequence from that era, and I'd kind of forgotten how almost formulaic the approach is to filming a battle mm-hmm. you like you show this side running you show that side running and then you have all these like little cuts of like random people from this side running into people from the other side <laughs> sure um but it was it's like the battle scene was like very kind of linear you followed it or i followed it really well sure. um yeah so well written like direction was it, it i think comfortable is a really good word like all that the technical aspects of the film were, were comfortably done. Like there was nothing that just jarred you. There were no like transcendent moments. Sure. But there weren't any like bad moments or like garbage moments where you just felt jolted out of the experience. Right. Right. Um, it had been a while since I'd seen it. Uh, I remembered broad strokes about the story. Um, it, it's one of those um, kind of and, and these these films that depict kind of the culture clash between the East and the West, you know, always, always have a little variance. Generally, they'll, they'll have some you can tell kind of the filmmakers tilt, like which one they think is better, the East sure. or the West kind of. Sure. Um, I thought this one started out pretty like for most of the film, I think it was pretty even handed. Uh, I think maybe towards the end, it may have let the probably let the samurai get away a little too easily. <laughs> um, as far as like the whole suicide thing, sure. um, is something that I I I don't like. <laughs> I don't like suicide <laughs> as a Christian. Um, yeah. So it always bothers me 
when there's a film that kind of embraces this idea of suicide as as noble. Um, so that that always bugs me in a film. Um, there were there were a couple of moments, one in particular that could have kind of stood out to me. Um, and again, watching a film like this now that I am like in some way aligning myself with the East, with the, the Eastern Church, I was kind of watching this this back and forth kind of between Eastern culture and, and Western culture, uh, a little bit different um, view, I guess, than I, I would have before. But there was a scene near the end uh, before the big battle, this this big climactic conclusion when it kind of is cutting back and forth between Tom Cruise's Captain, what's his last name? Captain uh, Algren. Algren, yeah. Algren. And then uh, the samurai, um, <laughs> Kashimoto, is that it? Sure. Something like that. And it cuts back and forth, and you see Tom Cruise's character sitting like alone in his room, like being quiet, maybe sort of meditating, but he's just sort of staring at either the wall or the window, or the ceiling. Do you remember that that sequence? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, but whenever it cuts back to the samurai character, it's he's in his temple and he's in front of the statue and he's praying and he's lighting incense or candles. Um, and I thought, you know, I don't know if this was the filmmaker's intention or not, or the writer's intention, but the film really more than about a a clash between east and west. There's another layer to it incidental or not where it's this clash between the irreligious west and the Mm -hmm. very religious east for sure pagan Um, but yeah pagan for sure like but but still like um who believes in things that are sacred and holy you know not um not to the extent that that life is sacred and holy uh i'm not gonna (laughs) keep picking at that um but that that scene like really kind of jumped out at me. I was like, I don't know if if it's just kind of fundamentally portraying the West as godless or irreligious, or or that was just sort of a random thing that maybe they didn't even really intend. But um, I kind of think that's helpful, and it would be better if when filmmakers approach this culture clash between the West and the East and, and the difference if I think it bears marking when an aspect of that clash is between um, an Eastern religion, uh, pagan or not, and a Western influence that has basically has no religion anymore. You know, not saying that the all West does, but in that film the West is constantly portrayed, or at least that aspect of the West is constantly portrayed as having no God. Like they don't sure. pray. Uh, I think, I think Tom Cruise's character is even like in some of his journals talks about how he doesn't know if there's a God or not. But right. I, I don't, I don't think it's fair to say that, you know, irreligion or secularism is, is, is the West, that the West is secularist. But I do think it bears mentioning when you're looking at, uh, a Western influence that is starkly secular, if that makes sense at all. Mm, sure. <coughs> that sounded like no, and you just want to be nice. I mean, I, I get, yeah, I mean, I get what you're saying. Um, so anyway, that I, I was just, I, I was watching that and, and thinking about that aspect of the film, and 
Um, what about, was there anything in your rewatch that, uh, anything else that stood out to you thematically or, or story-wise? Um, I, I really like the, the theme of honor really strikes me like in conjunction with their spirituality, you've got this, you've got this, um, group of people who are willing to fight and kill, uh, and slaughter for money. You know, yeah, and then on the other extreme, you've got this group of people who are bound to this deep sense and rooted in this ideal of what is fundamentally um, right or wrong. Now, their their rubric for deciding, you know, what defines an act as honorable or not, obviously is skewed because they, like you mentioned, you know, they think that. It's better to die by their own hand than to fail, you know, or to fall to their enemy, mm-hmm. but uh, which we would we would have problems with. But I think our Western culture. Uh, I mean, we've we've been there for a long time, like this. This kind of mentality where we've lost a sense of duty mm-hmm. to God, you know, like a sense of right and wrong that's beyond just pragmatism or practicality um and i don't know it's just something i've been meditating on a lot over the last couple of days i yeah. don't know like yeah. what kind of conclusions i've come to about that uh but i think I, I don't know that it's possible to have a sense of that honor uh and and a sense of duty in a world that doesn't have a firm rooted belief in truth now, we can just dis- you know different cultures disagree sometimes or different religions disagree about what truth may be but if you don't believe it's there then you can't have a sense of honor because yeah. there's nothing binding me to it right um because it's not true or you can't know that it's true or what's true for you might not be true for me and so on and so forth but when you watch movies like this it's obvious that it's more beautiful. Like you may disagree with some of the outcomes of their sense of honor, yeah. but, but the idea that they have honor and that they're willing to die for it, right? It, it's hard to walk away and not be attracted to it in a certain sense Yeah, and be repulsed by the other side of it or the, you know, the, the opposing side, which is just, yeah, $500 a month. I'll, you know, I'd kill you for nothing, you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> kind of, kind of mentality. Oh, we watched that. And at the end, um, like Kelly was not, we were watching it and I'm like, ah, there's more blood in this than I remembered. Like, oh yeah. Cause I, I watched the version. I had all the blood taken out. Um, and Kelly was like, there's a lot of blood in this movie. I'm like, yeah, there kind of is. And then at the end going to that battle, like she, she would look away when they would clash. Cause this little, little snippets where you'd see somebody swing a sword and then just this gash would open up on the other person. Uh, yeah. Um, but she would like, she would not fully look away because when Tony Goldwyn's character came on the screen, she's like, I just want to see him die. Mm, yeah. <laughs> um, which is, yeah, it's like more than anything else. You kind of wanted to see Tony Goldwyn's character die. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's but, not because he does anything particularly evil. Like, I know. Yeah, there, yeah. There's, there's not, there's no like horrendous act that he does, and he even, um, in the beginning says, "I was just following orders," right? Like, like there's, there's nothing about him that we would look at and say, 
that is a just just like based on his actions that we see mm-hmm. right that that's a particularly wicked or evil person other than he's willing to buy into this hey if you pay me enough i'll do it sure like, yeah there, there is there's his... no sense of dignity or or honor, right? Yeah. Like that's talked about so much on the other side. There is no greater thing that would compel him to disobey what is fundamentally an unjust or immoral order because he's lacking anything absolute that would make such an mm-hmm. order. It's kind of like if the order exists to him, it must be just and it must be moral. Right. Like the existence of the order means it's the right thing to do. Right. Um, yeah, I think that's that's well put because he's not I hadn't really thought about that until you mentioned it he's just sort of the embodiment of this worldview of mm-hmm. this idea it's like this is where you logically end up or this is a logical end to this sort of approach is mm-hmm. to be Tony Goldwyn in uh, yeah. The Last Samurai and, and it's pretty beautiful because where Captain Algren starts out in the same place Right, granite far more, um, far more tortured, right? Yeah, by his past, but still, he's he's still on that side and still willing to lead people into battle for money, essentially. Yeah, yeah. But what transforms him is, in large part, the duty-bound sacrifice of the widow of the man that he killed. Yeah. Right, like this woman who's willing to serve him and mend him and feed him and take care of him because she's bound by a sense of of honor and duty to her family, right? And it leads her to act in a gracious and kind way even though she doesn't want to, Mm. right? So it's it's, uh, an imperfect picture, obviously, but I I find like a really beautiful picture of a Christian, I don't want to say Christian duty right like lewis talks about right if you don't if you don't feel like you love somebody act like you do and it'll it'll happen eventually Mm -hmm. right like Mm -hmm. like you have to do what you know christ is calling you to do because it's christ calling you to do it not because you want to or because you feel like it or because you think it's fun or you you know agree with it yeah and um and that's what that's or at least a key part of what kind of transforms augren from the one side to the other which mm-hmm. i think is kind of cool yeah and i think like that early portion of the movie where you see him you know drunk and very tortured is where the other character i don't even remember the name of tony goldwyn's character who he is willing to live in that world and accept it tom cruise's character lives in that world and to a degree accept it accepts it but to me, his torturedness is um, an admission that he knows it's not right. Sure. That just because a, a, an order is given does not make that order just. He just doesn't have a framework in which he knows it's wrong, but he doesn't know how to prove it's wrong. Almost, mm-hmm. He hasn't been given an alternate vision of what a different world would look like right. until he ends up in the village. Um yeah, the, the, the part with him and, and the widow and, and her sons, um, I, I remembered it. You know, I remember that was there. And watching the movie, I was like, oh, it's like, man, this 
I, I was like, I, I, for, I don't remember how well they do this part of the story hmm. because you could do that really badly. <laughs> um, and they did it, they did it well though. Like, um, I, I did at the end of the movie kind of think like, I wouldn't mind watching a longer, more contemplative version of that movie where you see the relationship between Algren and that family develop more. Sure. Because I do think you're right. I think a, a good portion, even most of his healing comes from that relationship with them. Um, and, and sort of, yeah, you know, I, I would have liked to see more, I guess, working through not, I'm not faulting the movie for not having it, but I'm saying if they if they put out like a three hour version of this movie that included more of this and it was well done, I would probably watch it. Yeah, uh, sure. Where you see them kind of working through more the fact that he is the guy that killed their husband slash dad. Right. Um, I think I think the the progression you see in the film is believable in the film. I just I just kind of would like to see that story told again. Like I yeah. I, I wouldn't mind seeing. Uh, more attention given to that aspect of the story. Sure. Um, I, I get that. It makes sense. Yeah. Um, there was a line, I think it was when Algren was back uh, in, in the city before he and the samurai escaped back to the village where Tony Goldwyn's character comes in to try to give him his money and, and you know, to lead the, to lead the army. He doesn't want to lead the army. And, and uh, his Tony Goldwyn asked Tom Cruise, he's like, why do you hate your own people so much? Um, and I think it's a good question. I just think Tony Goldwyn is the answer. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think that's the reason, like, I don't think the movie is so much, or even Tom Cruise's character is like, hates like white people, but he hates this culture. He hates this and, and has, and his story is kind of, it's very much one of, Somebody who's been raised in this culture, has been part of this culture, has given himself to it, like to a degree that he probably never wanted to, um, has found it completely unsatisfying, shallow and empty, but doesn't have anything else to look to until he's introduced to this this honor culture that you see. Um, Again, that has its problems, but at least has some idea of transcendence that was lacking in the irreligious Western culture from which um, Tom Cruise's character came for sure. Uh, At the end of the, at the end of watching it, I thought another film that I think that I haven't seen, I keep meaning to watch it haven't yet, but I think would be an interesting film to pair with that. Like almost like a double feature would be to watch the last samurai and then to watch um, silence. Hmm. Have you seen silence? I have. I watched it. Uh, uh, a few weeks ago with Jessica. I haven't seen it yet. I, I want to, but it's um, it's interesting. It's it's kind of conflicting. Honestly. Yeah, I I, I read the book, sure. and the book was very much that way. But yeah. I have not seen the movie yet. Yeah. Um, uh, I thought Tom Cruise is really good in The Last Samurai. He can be a very yeah. one note actor. Um, but I thought thought he fit the role pretty well, and and gave like I, I he was very believable in that role to me. Sure. Um. So yeah, it was a good it was a good film. I enjoyed the opportunity to revisit it. Same here. Well, we're almost at the two hour mark, so we'll have to put a pen in it and 
either come back and record part two next episode or save part two for round two. I don't know. We'll have to figure out how what we're going to do there. But um, I don't know. I don't. I may have raised my voice once. I don't recall. But that may have just because <laughs> been because you were talking and I was trying to talk over you. I don't. I didn't get angry. Um, so I don't know that we did it right. Dang it. Dang it. Well, we didn't, we've got round two. We can we try got to round get two. there. Yeah. I didn't throw anything down, so let's try harder. Okay. Uh, well, hey, audience, thank you so much for um, hanging around, you know, a few minutes longer than normal this time. Um, this this episode and our last, I think our last episode was like an hour and a half. We're, we're starting to, we're like a pastor who's been at a church too long. We're just kind of stretching <laughs> the sermon out there. Um, we'll try to do better next time. Uh, Adam, thank you so much for the conversation. Uh, it's always fun, man. It's, it's all, it is always fun. It is always fun. Thank you audience for listening until next time. I'm Brian Thomas. I'm Adam Leggett. And we'll see you on the next episode.